This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be another adapted OrthoBullets core webinar from the OrthoBullets core curriculum, and this episode will cover TKA revision from the recon section. The topic will be reviewed by Dr. David Llewellyn, who is a joint replacement surgeon and professor of orthopedics at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Causes of failure after total knee replacement from um, this uh, article from uh, the Rothman Group, aseptic loosening is the most common cause of late revision, greater than two years, with the tibia more frequently loosening than the femoral component. It can be hard to see femoral component loosening, particularly with a PS design. The box will hide your view of the femoral condyles. Oblique views can help. It's also important to get films that are not tangential, but are looking down the interfaces of the implant. So it's very helpful to have spot views or fluoroscopically controlled views in patients where you're having trouble making a diagnosis and you're concerned there might be occult loosening. Serial x-rays are extremely valuable. Whenever you can get uh, sequential films over a period of years, always try to do that. It sometimes makes some changes that are subtle, uh, suddenly auto, um, very, very uh, obvious. And um, osteolytic uh, changes can begin as you approach 7 to 10 years. So be aware of that as a, um, another cause. Uh, particularly with metal back modular implants, there is uh, that second wear interface behind the poly, backside wear with abrasion of the top of the metal tray. The metal debris uh, serves as a third body particle, drives particle size down. It's the small particles that are really biologically extremely active and produce the uh, very large lytic lesions in some of these patients. Septic failure. 27%. I guess we should be happy that septic failure is showing up as such a large number of failures. It means the other things are going away in the old years. and Years ago, there were a lot of other things that were a lot more common, but uh, <clears throat> septic failure remains a real challenge. Ligamentous laxity, only 8% in this series. I must say that's higher in our practice, our revision practice here. Uh, we see a lot of uh, instability as a cause of unhappy knees, especially early after arthroplasty, and especially flexion instability, which can often be missed uh, clinically. Uh, and we'll talk more about that with some of the case examples coming up. But um, flexion instability related to failure to balance the, the flexion extension gap. And um, when the knee is tighter in extension and loose in flexion, uh, can slide around in an anterior-posterior direction, cause pain at the pes pain at the end of the, the IT band at Gertie's tubercle. Many times these patients complain of pain, the inability to trust their knee. They don't use the words that we usually associate with knee laxity or instability from our sports experience, uh, but that's the cause of the trouble. Be on the lookout for undersized femoral components on the lateral x-ray, excessive posterior slope, and um, you know many times these problems can occur in combination. Two or three things contributing to the imbalance. Remember, Flexion contracture is the other side of the same coin, just means you have a thicker poly. Now the knee may not be as loose in flexion, but it won't extend all the way. And sometimes you'll see patients with both. Just this past week, patient with a flexion contracture and also excessive laxity in flexion. These can occur in a delayed way, especially in CR knees if people uh, have a delayed rupture of their PCL. So it sometimes is not always uh, present immediately from the time of surgery in some of the CR patients. Periprosthetic fracture, about 5%, and perhaps uh, 
on the rise a little bit with the aging population, some of the osteolysis patients that we take care of. Arthrofibrosis, 5%. This is a real problem. Uh, depends on how you define arthrofibrosis. If you uh, start talking about painful stiff knees, some of which may have 90 degrees of flexion or so, this number starts to get even bigger because it's a relatively common cause of complaint and uh, is uh, sometimes due to patient factors. But I must say the majority of these cases that I see have other technical errors related to implant uh, insertion. Either that or internally rotated tibial components somehow uh, influence uh, gene regulation and turn on the arthrofibrosis genes because it's amazing how many of these patients have uh, technical errors related to their components as well. Patellar clunk syndrome is not quite as dramatic with today's implants, I believe. We don't have the big clunks like we did just a decade ago, but more crepitus and uh, you know Velcro kind of thing in some of these knees. If it doesn't hurt, ignore it. It's not harmful. You can reassure the patient. But if it causes pain, uh, it can be treated effectively with arthroscopic debridement. And that seems to be effective over the long term for most of these patients. Why it doesn't come back again, I, I must say I don't really understand. But the majority of patients who have an arthroscopic debridement of their clunk uh, do not have recurrence of those symptoms. And then finally, the great bugaboo, metal hypersensitivity. Does it exist really? How big a deal is this? And, and once again, I must say, many of the patients that I've had referred to me with questions of metal hypersensitivity uh, somehow seem to be predisposed to having nickel allergy or nickel allergy somehow causes uh, uh, component malrotation and um, ligamentous uh, imbalance in these joints, axial malalignment and other technical errors because frequently uh, there's another cause. So I think when you see somebody with uh, problems with their total knee, it's very important to take a history and perform a physical. It sounds stupid, but H&P is the basis of all we do in medicine. And it's amazing how many times a patient will tell you what's wrong Maybe not in exactly the words you're looking for, but if you listen to them, the clues are there. It's important to find out how painful their knee was before the original arthroplasty. Did they really have arthritis? Were they one of these patients with minimal arthritis that's never done very well from the beginning? How was their preoperative range of motion, their ambulatory status? Any history of infection, both after the index arthroplasty, but also prior to that, years ago, with penetrating injuries to the knee or other uh, problems, uh, prior surgeries, meniscectomies. You have to ask the question because they won't always tell you unless you directly query them. Histories of thrombophlebitis, uh, history of comorbidities that may impact on the outcome of the implant that you may be putting in for revision. All these things are very, very important. And then it's good to get the stickies, stickies that go in the, the chart that detail the implant the patient received. It's hard to get them, but a lot of hospitals have this someplace in their records. And it's much more reliable than dictated operative notes. I'm sorry, gentlemen and ladies, all of us tend not to be 100% reliable with our dictated operative notes in terms of implant sizing, the details of the actual devices that are used. But those stickies don't lie. Uh, they tell you what was used, and uh, they're very, very helpful. Review prior records. And then uh, prior images, very helpful in assessing whether there's been a change in an, in an implant over time. The temporal course of patient symptoms, very, very important. And um, of course, uh, those things that are related to the pain. Is it activity related, weight bearing, uh, mechanical sort of symptoms, 
pain is present all the time, continuous day and night. Other features, uh, you know, pain in other locations, radiating all around the body, uh, you know, severity of pain, you know, 15 on a scale of 0 to 10. Some of those things are red flags. And um, it doesn't mean there can't be real pathology there. It means it's going to be harder to figure out what's wrong with that patient. Stiffness doesn't always correlate with range of motion. Sometimes people can move their knee, but it doesn't move easily, and they have discomfort. And so they'll describe that with different words, and stiffness is often one of the words that's used to describe that. And it seems puzzling when someone sits there and goes from 0 to 120 degrees, but they doesn't feel right and hurts them through a portion of their arc of motion. And then the things that bring on particular types of instability, very helpful. So for flexion instability, there's some key questions. Stairs, but particularly going downstairs, are a problem for patients with flexion instability. In the same way that patients with ACL deficient knees have trouble with you know, pivoting, uh, rotating, cutting type maneuvers. So ask specifically about that. Start open, ask them if there are certain activities that bother them and they don't mention stairs. Ask them specifically about uh, stairs, ramps, that sort of thing. Very important. On physical exam, watching people walk can provide you real clues. Uh, whether they're fully extending their knee during stance phase, it turns out it takes a lot of energy to walk with your knee flexed. You can all try this after this broadcast and get up and walk around like a monkey for about five minutes, and you'll start burning your quads really quick. Uh, so patients who have even a relatively mild flexion contracture may really uh, be bothered by this because of decreased endurance and strength and uh, uh, symptoms they get from this in terms of their exercise tolerance. Measure range of motion both passively and actively. It's good to do that with a goniometer. There's data to show a lot of inner observer variability and people just sort of guessing on range of motion, you know, as they have somebody uh, go back and forth a couple of times. Skin changes, presence of effusion, the warmth of the, the part, other clues for complex regional pain syndrome, you know, uh, asymmetry in terms of the, the hair on the leg or the uh, color or appearance of the limb the appearance of the skin, is it shiny? Not all patients with RSD or complex regional pain syndromes will have these florid findings, but some will, and so it's worth making note of that uh, in the event it's present. Ligamentous laxity on exam, really important. We all examine these knees uh, routinely, but it's so easy to miss significant laxity, and um, particularly not just you know medial lateral laxity and extension, most people pick up on that, Flex the knee 20, 30 degrees, check again. And then when you do your Lachman or anterior posterior drawer with the patient on the exam table, knee flex 90 degrees, seems okay. You're not done. You need to have the patient sit on the table or on a chair in the exam room with their foot flat on the floor and check the AP stability of that knee. For some reason, a lot of patients with flexion instability, when a big guy like me or you comes and grabs that leg and starts shaking it around and their knee hurts, they co-contract their muscles and you can miss significant laxity just like you might in a young athlete with an ACL tear. And so if you sit them in a chair put, and they put their foot flat on the floor, for some reason they relax and you can much more easily detect significant AP laxity. We'll unmask this quite well on exam. I always, always, always check that 
because otherwise you can miss uh, significant AP laxity inflection. And then pay attention to patellar tracking. And while you examine the knee, put your hand on the front of the knee because sometimes you can feel crepitus from patellar clunk or from a worn joint in someone with a primary, with a, a knee that's never been operated. You can feel some of these things even if you can't hear them as some of us, our hearing starts to go as the years go by, but you'll be able to feel the crepitus transmitted to your palm. So for imaging purposes, serial AP and lateral radiographs, really helpful. Weight-bearing films provide additional information and sometimes will allow you to see the asymmetric wear with a narrower medial side than lateral side. Always, always, always get skyline views or merchant views of the patella so you can assess patellar tracking. Uh, sometimes you can see patellar fractures and other pathology that you will not see very easily on, on an AP and lateral x-ray. And when you think about it, it's satisfying the basic principle we all learned as residents. You know, you would never think of seeing a tibia fracture and taking care of it with a single AP view. So why would you take care of someone's patella with a single lateral x-ray? You can't really see the patella very well on an AP view. So the sunrise view gives you the second view that's essential for adequate assessment of the patella should always be done on every single knee x-ray you get of somebody. So we always get three pictures of every knee no matter what, AP lateral and sunrise view. They get a film, they get three exposures at our place. AP pelvis is really helpful to rule out hip pathology. If you get a standing full length x-ray routinely of patients when they have painful total knees for alignment, it's a freebie. And it's a reminder, when you look at that full-length standing x-ray for alignment, always look at the hip. I can't tell you the number of times people at our place have picked up hip pathology thanks to a full-length standing x-ray. We'd like to think that they would have picked it up on their exam because every patient with knee problems should have a hip exam as well. But I must tell you, I'm sure that those standing x-rays have saved us a few times when a hip pathology would otherwise have been missed. And we have a collection of cases here of patients who have referred with painful revision total knees, unresponsive to two or three surgeries somewhere else, good-looking x-rays, a little flexion contracture, complaints of pain in their knee, and the problem all along was a completely worn-out hip that nobody picked up on. And, um, you know, their knee pain is cured by having their hip replaced. So be on the lookout for this because they're out there. CT really controversial in terms of its value. I, I know some people like to get it, um, you know, to look at uh, osteolytic lesions and see how big they are. We kind of like to look at those with binocular white light navigation at the time of surgery, you know. If you're going to operate on them anyway, you're going to see, see the defects. But I think in situations where it may require that you bring in special resources and, and you have to be able to plan to, for whether it's a big case or a smaller case, it may be that in that situation CT would be of greater value. I think that um, the other thing that's possible to do with CT is look at component rotation. It's kind of hard sometimes to know for sure. There's a lot of inter-observer variability in these uh, measurements, but um, it, it is good to think this way, to think of component rotation. And uh, sometimes if you, someone, you're not sure whether uh, someone should be operated or not and you're searching for a mechanical cause of pain, there are situations where it may be the piece of data that tips you over and helps you decide to go ahead and operate on someone. But it's much easier for me to, to see malrotated components at the time of surgery than it is to uh, 
tell precisely uh, what's going on on CT scan, to be honest. Bone scan we get very, very rarely. It's done a lot. I don't think it's, it's extremely helpful. Bone scans are going to be positive for a lot of reasons. You know, if somebody's done almost anything they need to stir it up, there can be some increased uptake. Remember bone scans, how they work. Increased blood flow and new bone formation. The medications are deposited and are specific to those two things. So anything that causes that to happen will cause a positive bone scan, and the list is long. If you have a stone-cold bone scan, there may be times uh, to kind of reassure you that you're not missing something on someone with uh, six or seven cats, you know, 12 tattoos that you're not so sure you want to operate on, uh, but you're afraid you might be missing something uh, in terms of real pathology. A really stone-cold bone scan can help you a lot. We'll talk about prosthesis selection. Some of this is kind of personal preference, but it's good to know when people who always do things one way start switching to a different technique. The things that drive you from less constraint to more constraint, even if you're inclined to use a lesser degree of constraint routinely. So an unconstrained posterior crucial retaining CR type knee is uh, indicated when the posterior crucial is intact. And um, you know, if the PCL is gone, there are ways to torture the procedure, use dish inserts or other things to try to make a CR femur work and so on. But basically, the concept is CR knees require an intact PCL. That means intact. If it's really pathologic or uh, it requires a great deal of uh, release uh, for balancing, then uh, those are situations where you may want to think about uh, switching to a uh, posterior stabilized type of implant. And so, of course, as everyone knows, some folks tend to use posterior stabilized implants routinely for, for all of their knees. I think for the occasional surgeon, it's a good choice uh, in terms of implants because there's a wider range of pathology you can take care of with a uh, posterior stabilized implant. CR knees are great, but uh, you can't use them for everybody, and it gets hard to, uh, or at least more difficult to make them work in people with flexion contractors and valgus and other issues of this sort. So uh, I think uh, it's nice to be able to do one procedure this pretty much the same way with some variation on soft tissue balancing and know you're going to have a, big, uh, a very reliable choice. So we teach both here, but uh, we tell our residents who are leaving who are going to be doing you know, occasional total knees in sort of a general practice that we think a uh, poster stabilized implant is a really good choice. So this next question. 64-year-old female with rheumatoid arthritis. That's a red flag. There are not a lot of them around anymore with DMARs. And uh, some of the younger surgeons on the line tonight may not have seen a lot of RA patients, but um, special issues, so your antennas are up automatically. Uh, undergoing left total knee arthroplasty. During the tibial cut, a ligament is transected. I think we all know which one. The usual victim, and um, the ligament is not repairable, which I think is unusual. I mean, usually it's a saw cut or occasionally an osteotoma retractor, but you usually are able to repair uh, the ligament. But uh, in this case, not repairable. So uh, the surgeon is trying to balance the knee, finds that there's uh, valgus instability greater than a centimeter, no stop, so complete disruption, both the deep and superficial. And so what implant should you bail to in this situation? You know, I think that uh, at a minimum, 
a varus valgus constrained implant uh, would be the choice in this patient. And I say at a minimum because that's what we would prefer to do. It's possible, and it's been described, to repair the ligament, augment it with uh, autogenous tissues, and uh, make less constrained implants work. I think that's a little bit of a party trick. Great if you can pull it off, but a lot safer to repair the ligament as well as you possibly can. So you think it's going to be great, but then protect the ligament with a, a CCK constrained condylar, you know, TC3 style implant that has varus valgus constraint to protect the repair. And then I put those patients in a brace. I'm not sure the brace does a lot. I think it does provide a little bit of protection, slows them down. And it tells them something special happened here. You need to be careful this first six or eight weeks, not get crazy, not be falling down, don't disrupt the repair. I think there are situations where the final answer number five is right, where a rotating hinge would be a good choice. Some rheumatoid patients have significant ligamentous imbalance anyway. It's not uncommon to have valgus knees of significance, flexion contracture in some of the rheumatoid patients. If the MCL is already stretched and attenuated and, and you disrupt it with uh, someone pulling on a retractor, your exposure somehow, or with a uh, saw blade cut, and you've got balancing problems, and especially if your flexion gap is difficult to control, there may be times when a primary rotating hinge is a good choice. Some of these patients have stretched out posterior capsule, their knee hyperextends. Hyperextension is really a hard thing to control, and so even a higher level of constraint is an appropriate thing to consider. And for, patient, for those of you who wish to do these more challenging cases, severe rheumatoids and so on, you may have you know, what you're intending to do, but you have to have backup options, plan B, plan C, if things go wrong and the wheels come off. So uh, the answer here, varus valgus constraint, 84%, we're able to get that uh, correct. Uh, remember, PCL uh, substituting knees, posterior stabilized knees, do not have any medial lateral constraint. They don't provide any medial lateral stability. So just because they have a post doesn't mean they're going to help you. That large central post in the varus valgus constraint knees does engage the sidewalls and provide some protection. If you have a completely absent MCL, you can have late failure of these implants, though. They can uh, deform the post, break it off or wear it off, and uh, have recurrent symptoms late. The same is true with uh, you know, severe lateral ligamentous injury in the old days with the really extensive lateral releases for valgus, basically an iatrogenic injury to the lateral structures. It's possible in a figure four position for people to jump their post and uh, dislocate the post out of the housing. So it isn't a perfect answer, but I think it is something that can work, particularly if you have intermediate levels of uh, laxity, shall we say. But I get nervous if there's complete absence of ligaments and I'm trying to depend on a big hunk of plastic. And we start thinking about hinges in some of those circumstances. Constrained hinge, these days usually with a rotating platform to try to relieve stresses at the fixation interfaces on the bone. Um, a good choice, an important tool for complex revision surgery when you have major ligamentous laxity on either side of the knee and when you have a flexion gap a laxity where you simply can't balance the knee. Uh, you can't put in a big enough femoral component, nor can you elevate the joint line far enough 
and have plastic thick enough to fill up that flexion space. It's physically impossible, and then it's an indication for rotating hinge. The other special scenario where uh, we found on a review of polio patients here at our institution where rotating hinges are indicated is in some, not all, but some polio patients. And specifically, if patients have less than anti-gravity strength of their quadriceps, uh, they will do better with a rotating hinge than with less constrained implants. And it has to do with the hyperextension that can occur and the stretching that can occur over time without the hinge. Now, this is a little tricky because people without quad strength have to be able to hyperextend a few degrees to keep from falling down without a brace. If you give a polio patient with uh, absent quad function a flexion contracture, you doom them doom them to a lifetime with a double upright brace with drop locks because if their knee is flexed they can't decelerate and keep from falling down. They'll fall on their nose and uh, they, they can't trust their limb. And so if you watch polio patients who haven't had surgery, they all hyperextend their leg and sometimes rotate it internal or external in order to lock it into extension so that they can go over the top of that leg and walk without a brace. They've all worn braces when they were younger. They all hate braces. They all want to not wear a brace if there's any way they can get away with it. And uh, they need to have a little bit of extension, and a rotating hinge can allow them to do that. Once in a while, we'll do this for Charcot joints as well, although I must tell you, uh, when we have patients where we're pretty sure it's a Charcot, um, we, we will often begin the journey, and I think it's a journey of serial uh, implants for many of these people with a varus valgus constrained implant, a LCCK style, try to make that work. It's really hard to predict the ones that it's going to work in and the ones that won't. And uh, if you can make that work with less constraint, I think there's less chance they're going to knock the heck out of the uh, fixation. But uh, tough problems and uh, difficult to manage as a primary arthroplasty. During uh, revision surgery, you have certain general steps that you have to accomplish. Every revision starts with, after exposure, extraction of the components, hopefully with minimal damage to the host bone. And then an assessment of bone deficiencies and a plan early on and how those deficiencies are going to be managed. And then the reconstruction begins on the tibial side of the joint. So the tibial platform is reestablished and the knee is built off the tibia. So creating a stable, supported platform, hopefully at a relatively appropriate level, so that you don't have to use huge pieces of plastic to build up that tibial tray. Uh, you can then go over to the femoral side, begin with the flexion gap and the extension gap, and build the knee off the tibia. The size of the femoral component, the position of the femoral component, proximal and distal, is dictated by soft tissue balancing. So balancing the knee ligaments after establishing the tibial platform is the essential pathway to success. And then you have to have stable implants well supported on host bone. And then of course adequate soft tissue coverage. And hopefully you've thought of that at the beginning in people with bad soft tissues and not at the end of the operation because you may need help from a plastic surgeon and that has to be arranged. So 
Surgical exposure needs to be extensile. You'll be able to see what you're doing. A medial peripatellar approach can get you to work in the majority of the revisions as long as you know how to release subperiosteally the medial side of the tibia all the way around to the posteromedial corner, externally rotating the foot, and subluxing, not everting the patella because that will allow you to expose the femur and the tibia in the majority of patients after releasing appropriately intra-articular intra, uh, scar, freeing up the medial lateral gutter. When that doesn't work, then we will quite frequently and routinely go to a quadriceps snip. This further reduces the tension in the extensor mechanism. You want to protect the patellar tendon attachment to the tibia, not have that pull off, and so Quad snip has no penalty. We repair it with non-absorbable sutures, but we don't change the post-op recovery at all. And it can really help you protect your extensor mechanism from iatrogenic damage. And uh, that plus external rotation of the tibia will allow you to access the majority of the knees. A couple of times a year in a busy revision practice, that's not enough, and we'll have to do a tubercle osteotomy. Uh, these are usually special circumstances. And honestly, it, more, it happens more often in primaries than it does in revisions. Very unusual primaries. We had a, a lady with a machete injury from Somalia whose knee hadn't bent for you know many, many years. It was basically ankylosed, although there was just enough motion to make it hurt. That kind of thing. People with uh, you know really severely contracted joints where, and bad bone quality where you're really worried about uh, damaging the bone or causing a fracture, trying to get into these people, it's sometimes better to do a controlled release of that sort. After you've exposed the joint, you have to remove the implants. It's important to uh, be patient with implant removal, divide the interface between the undersurface of the tray and the underside of the femoral component, and then uh, disimpact these implants. Sometimes uh, there can be difficulty with stem extensions. Know the implant look up kind of how things fit together, make sure you have the right screwdrivers to take, take out screws or bolts that may fix a tray to a stem. These things can save you time and prevent significant bony injury during the procedure. After you've got the components out, tibia side first, as we said, then go to the, the femoral side, balance the flexion extension gaps, and also medial lateral stability. If there uh, is uh, medial lateral asymmetry, perform uh, releases as necessary. We favor pie crusting type of releases on the lateral side for sure and, and actually uh, have started doing a few of those on the medial side with a needle in some select instances and that seems to work when the usual subperiosteal release is not sufficient. Keep track of the patella and how it's tracking. Uh, the patella is the canary in the coal mine. So if the canary drops off of its perch, you need to be worried about something going on. It's a warning, and it's usually not the patella's fault. There's something else wrong in that joint. Component malrotation, some kind of issues that are leading to patellofemoral tracking. Once in a rare while, you'll have a patella that's been, you know, dislocated chronically for a long time, and a lot of, you know, extensive lateral release is required, but the majority of our Vision surgeries, we're not doing extensive lateral releases. Maybe minimal kind of circumpatellar release on the lateral side, but certainly not the old up and down lateral releases of years gone by.
If you get the components the right place and the knee balanced, the patella tends to track pretty well. The tapaseal bone replacement. This is a big topic. Uh, it's one where there's been a lot of action in the last few years. What we've learned is that um, it's not enough to put uh, a flat tibial component or ephemeral component on the end of the bone, have big cavitary holes in the metaphysis, and then stick some kind of stem up the bone and think it's going to work. Whether you press fit the stem or cement it, failure rates are high. And so metaphyseal support is necessary both for axial load bearing but rotation. And we think the rotational stability that they provide, that is provided by the metaphysis, is the critical issue. There are different ways to do it. You can try to impaction graft the host bone if it's cavitated. You can use structural allografts in some cases if you're missing a condyle in the femur. And then there are also sleeves and cones designed to restore metaphyseal support. But this, since we've kind of moved towards aggressive metaphyseal reconstruction, it has been a game changer for improving the durability of fixation in our own uh, hands in our, in our revision practice. Classification of bone defects, the AORI uh, classification, the Anderson Clinic uh, classification scheme uh, is the one used by most. It's relatively straightforward. It can be remembered. That's an advantage. It doesn't do a perfect job of telling you what to do, like some classification schemes in other joints. So that's a, a weakness. But um, it allows us to communicate and talk to each other. And so you can see the chart here. The type 1s are minor bone defects, really haven't lost much bone. And you can use standard revision components with uh, short stems if you cement, longer press fit stems if you wish and minimal additional adjunctive implant add-ons. Metaphyseal bone damage requires something to kind of fill in the defects. Sometimes uh, cement can be used, or even cement and screws, as described by Merrill Ritter's group on the femoral side and tibial side. Some of the block augments that the manufacturers all carry will uh, occasionally fit a defect quite well and restore that rotational control and actual support that's needed. And then uh, cement filling of smaller defects, also uh, reasonable. As we start to get to major damage of the condyles, this is where there may be a difference between what's sufficient to get you out of the operating room, but what is necessary for long-term fixation. And we know that as bone deformities, as bone uh, defects get worse, risk of loosening goes up with standard techniques. So some people will still try to just fill these with cement or use the standard block augments, maybe small bone grafts. Uh, the small bone grafts can resorb and uh, have about you know a 25% failure rate by seven or eight years uh, in a series from our institution. So not that they don't work, but a lot of them resorb and cause uh, intermediate term loosening. So this is where we start thinking about adjunctive measures trying to restore better support and where the different manufacturers have a variety of implants to try to restore metaphyseal bone damage. One side, both sides, a variety of strategies for doing that. And then the more severe de defects, where you really are missing a whole bunch of bone, you have to either use bulk allografts, custom implants, or tumor-type replacement devices, particularly if uh, you're missing your collateral ligaments, you get into a rotating hinge type of device. But even with the rotating hinges, that 
restoration of metaphysis for rotational control and enhanced fixation is, we think, extremely valuable. So we actually start further up the line and more minor defects using smaller porous metal sleeves or inserts, cones, trying to get what is hybrid fixation, both cement and porous ingrowth. The cement holds it still at the beginning, allowing the bone to grow into the motionless interface of the porous metal part of the implant. As the bone grows into the porous metal part, the stresses on the cement go down and it is protective. So reconstruction addressed with long stems to promote load sharing. If you're a press fitter, short to intermediate length stems uh, if you cement. The advantage of the press fit stems, they're technically uh, relatively straightforward. There's no ingrowth. They guide the alignment of the implants, which is a huge advantage, but can get you into trouble when you start getting real long and there's a bow in the bone on either femoral tibial side. There are offset type mechanisms to try to compensate for that, but it starts to get more difficult as you get longer in a curved bone. Cemented stems have the advantage of being more easily adapted to uh, some of these bones with curves. They deliver, cement delivers antibiotics because we usually antibiotic cement, that's an advantage. It's good for poor quality, you know, very large, uh, capacious type bony cavities where you, you may not have a stem big enough to fit inside some giant femur, but it can be more difficult to remove. We get around that by coupling it with a porous cone, an intermediate length stem, 60 millimeters or so, very revisable, and intraoperative x-rays to make sure that we have the alignment right. Since we don't have that long stem, to kind of make the alignment, uh, put the alignment part of the operation on autopilot, which is what you get from the long stems to some degree. So cavitary defect filling, small defects is cement, good choice, metaphyseal sleeves, advantages as we've discussed already. These fit onto the implant and are impacted. It can be hard to fit the defect perfectly and get perfect rotation and position of the components, but with proper instrumentation, that can be made more easy. They are expensive, they can be difficult to remove, and uh, they're very implant specific, so you can't use them from one manufacturer to another. The porous metal cones tend to be uh, a little more adaptable. We can use them with a whole host of different implant types that we have, but they're expensive. They can be difficult to remove in the one scenario, which is rare, thank goodness, of late infection. So surgery's done, bone grows in, everything looks fine, some years later, perhaps with hematogenous seeding, infection occurs. We've had a very few handful of cases like this, difficult to remove, and um, can result in significant bone loss. So that's the downside of, uh, of the large size cones. Smaller cones easier because you can get the implant out and work around them with a pencil tip burn. They can irritate the soft tissues if they're left exposed. So cover it up if you have exposed metal in the area of the PEZ, for example with bone wax or cement or bone graft substitute, any of those things work and we don't have any data to tell you to use one over the other in terms of um, outcome. Structural allograft used to be a lot more common, still used occasionally trying to restore bone stock, especially in younger patients where there may be some advantage to that, but uh, it's infrequently used now. It takes a lot of time. Uh, infection risk goes up with the length of the surgery, size of the components that you put in dead bone is at risk for infection, and the infections in these patients are really tough to take care of. Got a big hole at the beginning, gets infected, you have an even bigger hole at the end. So 
It's in the armamentarium, but infrequently used, I must say now. So getting down towards the end, in terms of uh, general comments, pain scores are less favorable than primary needs, well, we all know, along with activity scores. Uh, stiffness can sometimes be a problem. Longer surgeries, neurovascular problems uh, with uh, correction of valgus and flexion deformity and infection double the risk of primary knee, knee arthroplasty, uh, so a real focus uh, for the future. Skin necrosis, a real problem. Try to avoid this. Use the most lateral incision that is usable and, um, you know, have a good relationship with your plastic surgeon. You may need help. And in some cases, uh, tissue expanders, sham procedures, or other procedures by plastics ahead of time to cover the wound first, get it healed. Before you come back and do a big revision, the arthroplasty is the way to go to make it safer for the patient to avoid wound healing problems and a catastrophic deep infection. Finally, extensor mechanism reconstruction. This can be done with um, allograft or Marlex mesh. We've had better luck with the mesh. We used to do a lot of the allografts, and they're fun, and they look great at two or three years. But the problem is if you follow those, a lot of them start stretching out late. And no matter how you do them, no matter how tight you leave them, and we've had less, not 100% success, but less trouble with stretch, particularly with patellar tendon disruptions with the mesh. Quadriceps disruptions, tougher. Uh, we've used the mesh for that too, but uh, uh, that requires more extensive surgery and mobilization, and I think because you have poor tissue to fix to, not as reliable results. That's all for this review on TKA revision. If you would like access to the full video version of these core webinars, sign up for the OrthoBullets core curriculum today. There will be a link in the show notes for anyone who is interested. Thanks so much for listening. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. See you all tomorrow.